Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 5. Well, this morning, uh, I was planning on speaking on something very different than what I was planning on. I had a a feeling I was going to be speaking on Ephesians chapter 3, and then uh, Friday came and I felt a passage that was really coming to my mind. So this is a, uh, a newborn sermon, just made on Friday and Saturday, so hopefully this goes well. Um, but this passage has come to mind over the last couple of weeks as we've been dealing with in the past year and a half uh, with hardship, with trials, with things that may have us lose focus on the authority of Jesus. And so I love this passage. This is the classic passage of the demoniac. So I'm sure that a lot of you guys are familiar with this. Uh, This is a passage that, when we look at it, has so many different applications, has so many different nuances. And that's what I love about this, uh, is that when we come to the Gospel of Mark, Mark is a craftsman with storytelling. Uh, He is known kind of in the Gospels as the cliff notes or the spark notes of the Gospels. He strips everything down to bare information. He's uh, a lot less information than Matthew or Luke. And so this passage comes to mind, and I'm really excited to preach on this because it's something I've been meditating on for the past couple weeks, uh, and it's something I think that we can learn from in 2021 that's going to give us a solid grounding on how to move forward with politics, with life, with church, with everything else. So we're going to read through uh, all 20 verses. It's a, it's a lot, but hang with me. I promise you it's rich and it's good. So we're going to read through all 20 verses, and then we're going to dive in and understand what Mark is trying to tell us. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 1, and if you have your Bibles, follow along. Mark 5.1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to what is, see what was happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began proclaim, proclaiming in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. 
and everyone marveled. So this is a fascinating passage, uh, one that we don't often see. Um, and the setting is the Sea of Galilee. And when we understand Scripture and when we understand what's happening, it's good to take things into context. So right before this passage, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're traveling across. And this is the famous story of the disciples and Jesus on the boat being thrown about by the storm and Jesus calming the storm. And the, the disciples are, are scared. They have no idea what's going on. Uh, and one of the things that we see is that when we see, think of the Sea of Galilee, we think of a nice calm sea. So if we see here, Capernaum is right here. This is where they're leaving from. And they're going across over to here, which is modern-day Kersey. That's what it's called. Um, Peter and I actually had the privilege of being over there uh, to graduate from LBC. Uh, we had the requirement going to Israel. We had the chance to go to Kersey. And so we see they're going over here. Uh, and when we think of the Sea of Galilee, at times we think of this picture, right? We think of it's a beautiful, calm, and it, it can be like that. It's absolutely gorgeous. This is a photo that I took one of the mornings with the sun rising over the eastern shores. And so we think of this serene type of atmosphere. But when winds come into the Sea of Galilee, uh, it can become like this. Now, this is a, a really famous painting. Uh, this is called Storm on the Sea by a person named Rembrandt. Rembrandt was a very famous painter. Uh, this is one of my, famous, or one of my favorite paintings, uh, and it shows the, the tidal waves that could come onto the Sea of Galilee when winds would swoop down into the valley and create hurricane-like conditions. I think this is the setting that we see the disciples, right before we get to this passage. They're screaming, they're terrified, and where do we find Jesus? Uh, he's asleep, of all things, in the boat. Uh, and the disciples come to him and they ask him, do you not care that we're perishing? And he, he stands up and he says, peace be still. And the winds uh, ceased, the waves ceased, and everything was calm again. This is the context for which we come into this passage. Because they came in from that incident, and they came across the Sea of Galilee, which took about two hours uh, to go from side to side from where they were. And so they just came off of this miraculous event. And then the first thing that happens is Jesus' feet steps on the shore, and a man comes running to him. And so we're going to see Mark, in his masterful way, craft what it looks like for, for us to read about Jesus, to read about his authority. And it says, they came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this man comes running down. Can, you can imagine being one of the disciples. Uh, you're frazzled from what had just happened beforehand. The passage, the last verse, says they were afraid because who can control the winds and the sea? And then you come to this passage, and uh, you step on the shores, and you arrive in the Gentile nations, and all of a sudden, this man comes running down, uh, and he is known among everyone for being demon-possessed and for being animalistic. Now, when we look at modern-day Kersey, this is a picture from what we see here. You can't see it because of the screen, but right here is actually a cave. And this is the modern place that they think that the demoniac and the event of the demoniac happened. Uh, we can see here on this one, there are caves all along here. Uh, tombs where people from the Decapolis, the ten Gentile cities, would come and bury their dead. Uh, and this is another photo that I took. You can see how close it is to the Sea of Galilee and how it 
models down the slopes, down towards the sea, and we have a very real place that this has taken place. Now, when we think of it, this man that comes to Jesus is one of the most miserable men in all of Scripture. Uh, the only one who I can think of who might be on the same level of torture and of a miserable fate is Job. And Job is a very well-known story. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his, his land. He lost everything, his cattle. His friends would go and say that essentially you need to repent because clearly you have sinned. His wife had said the same thing, and he was covered in boils. This is a man that we think of where when we think of suffering, even secular will use this term and say, this is a Job-like suffering. Well, this man is very, very much on the same level. Job, uh, I think in him, would find kindred spirits with suffering. Uh, And it says here that he lived among the tombs, that he was filled with unclean spirits. We see here that he would cut himself with rocks, that he couldn't be bound with chains. Now, this is a man, if we think of it, who is in desperate need. And he comes running down and meets Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the Jews, which all of his disciples uh, would identify as, see this. uh, And they would immediately see a man come running down, and he is unclean. Now, when we think of the term unclean, uh, it's easy to have our own modern interpretation of, like, man, like, the guy really needs a bath. That's not what the term unclean means. Unclean is the way that you were unclean to worship and go to the temple and to go before God. And he was unclean on so many levels. Uh, He was demon-possessed. He was filled with unclean spirits. He was living among the dead. And the Jews, if you came into any contact with even an item, from a tomb or from that's been in contact with the dead, you would cleanse yourself for the, for the next seven days before going into the temple, before worshiping again. You had these rituals. He lived among Gentile nations. And if you've studied the Bible at all, you realize that the Jews did not have a good opinion about the Gentile nations or the Samaritan nations. They didn't like them at all. And then we also see that uh, he was someone who would cut himself, and he lived among the terrible, uh, in the Jewish opinion, swine. Pigs were unclean. And so we see this man who is just unclean on so many levels. And then we come to the passage that Jesus first interacts with him. And it's a beautiful passage because it tells us a lot about the ministry of Jesus, not just then, but today. It says here that uh, in verse 6, and when Jesus, when he saw Jesus from afar, he fell down and was crying out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now that is an interesting statement. We have Jesus who is just coming across, just coming from a miracle with his disciples. And all of a sudden, this man comes running down. And he has not just a messianic declaration. The, the guy who is filled with demons doesn't just proclaim him to be the Messiah. He says, Son of the Most High God. That is a title of divinity. He immediately recognizes Jesus as divine coming down. And the demons are terrified. The demons have no idea what Jesus plans to do. They have no idea what he's going to do. But they know that in the presence of Jesus, they have absolutely zero authority. Which is why we see in this passage that multiple people will beg him. And we're going to come to that point later of application. 
But we see here that Jesus meets him, and he says right away that he was, going, he was saying, come out of this man. Come out of this man. And this is an interesting statement for demon possession. This is an interesting statement for authority. Because we see here Jesus doesn't uh, request that the demons come out. The demons don't fight him. They don't say, you can't do that. What they end up doing is they ask him and they, they say, please do not send us out of the country. Do not cast us away, but send us into the swine. Now, when we think of today, I think of the last year and a half, uh, and there have been times where I feel like uh, chaos has ensued. If you guys think about it with politics, uh, this has been a politically divisive year. Uh, unless you've been living under a rock, everyone is kind of feeling the tension of uh, political divisiveness. We have divisiveness with masks. We have divisiveness with COVID. We have divisiveness with so many different things. And one of the beautiful things that we see is that in the previous story, when Mark is writing about the Sea of Galilee, and then in, the, in this story, Jesus brings order from chaos. He brings order out of the hardships and out of the chaos, and Jesus comes into these things, and he doesn't come in requesting order. He comes in and he demands it because he has authority over these situations. And when Jesus is meeting here, he then moves on out of this authority, and he says, what is your name? And so he allows the, the demons to speak. He allows the demon-possessed man to speak, uh, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, if you've studied this at all, that term legion is, uh, is a term for, for coming from the Roman army, uh, and it's a battalion of 5,600 soldiers. So we don't know if the, the person was being literal here. We don't know if the demons were being literal. We don't know if they, the guy had literally 5,600 demons inside him. But what it does mean is that he had a host of demons inside him, one that was too innumerable for us to count. And so he says... Um, he asks not to be tortured. He reveals his name. And then he says to him, he begged him earnestly and he says, please send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but if I was a bystander to this situation, uh, I might have a few questions. I might have like what is going on here? What do, you, what do you mean this man is demon-possessed? And now they're wanting to be sent into pigs. Of all things, they're going to be sent into pigs. Not just like one pig or two pigs or three pigs, but 2,000 pigs. Uh, this was a large herd, if that's the term that we want to use for it. If there's another word for a large pack of pigs, maybe that sounds better, pack of pigs. Um, but we see that Jesus sends them into the pigs. Now, the pigs, uh, they do not start breaking <laughs> chains. They do not start uh, cutting themselves with stones. They don't start doing these things that the demoniac did. Uh, what happens to the pigs is they run down off the cliffs, uh, and they go into the ocean, and they drown. A pretty stark scene. Uh, if you are there, and especially if you are one of the Gentile farmers that are living in that area of the Gerasenes, uh, you just lost 2,000 pigs. Uh, I would be questioning what is going on. And we see coming from this story that we have multiple levels of authority. Um, we have multiple levels of 
people coming to Jesus, of having different responses to Jesus, of having different ideas of what they want to do with Jesus. Right? We see this a lot where in this passage it says that uh, the herdsmen, after seeing this, uh, they didn't bow down and worship. They didn't come and ask him who Jesus is. In verse 14, it said, after seeing this, the people who were responsible fled, and they went into the Decapolis, into the cities, and they told everyone what happened. They were terrified that someone just got off of a boat and cast out demons, and they just lost 2,000 pigs, let alone they might have also been able to witness the storm being calmed, and they may not have known who Jesus was that Jesus did this. But they would have just seen a massively violent storm over the Sea of Galilee calm in seconds. And that just doesn't happen. That's not natural. That is supernatural. And so we, we come to Jesus. We see that uh, there are multiple responses. For the demoniac, he immediately ran down uh, and fell at the feet of Jesus. And the demoniac doesn't uh, run and flee. What he actually does is he realizes who he is. The demoniac knows who Jesus is because of the demons, uh, and, and he proclaims the divine title of who God is. He says, I know exactly who you are. And then we come to a different shift in the passage. Up to this point, we have been encountering Jesus with the demoniac and him exercising authority over him and casting him out and moving him away from, moving the person away from the demons and bringing life back to him. We're going to switch in the narrative now, and Mark is going to give us a little bit of a different twist. And it says that uh, people came back to see, and they came to see Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man. Now, if you were living in the Decapolis at this point, you would have known about this demon-possessed man. Uh, He was someone who was likely living in the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it was ten Gentile cities that were all together. Ten Gentile cities that were prosperous, that flourished. And they would have known about this man living on the outskirts who was able to break chains, who lived among the tombs. Even for Gentiles, no one wants to live among the tombs. If we had somebody who lived in a cemetery in Middletown, we would question, and I guarantee you everyone would know about the person living in the cemetery within a few days. And so this is a bizarre situation. And they come out to see, and you would think the response of the people after seeing this man who wrenched chains apart and who cut himself with stones was sitting there, sober-minded, clothed for the first time in how long, and not filled with demons. You would think that they would come and they would be marveling at the work of Jesus. But instead, they actually have a very different response. It says they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened. And they began not to worship. They didn't begin to exalt the name of Jesus. They began to literally beg him to leave because they were afraid. They begged him to leave because they didn't want anything to do with him. Now, this is an interesting part in the narrative. I love how Mark brings irony into these narratives. I love how Mark brings understanding into into his narrative. Uh, And it says that they were afraid, and then all of a sudden, he was getting into the boat, and now we have another reaction. 
So we have multiple reactions, three reactions that are going to hit back to back to back. And again, this is Mark's craftiness with his narrative. Mark, when he writes, gives us a beautiful story and a beautiful outline. And one of the things that we see from this is that... Um, <laughs> there we go. I was hitting my laptop keys, not the clicker. Um, one of the things that we see from this is that out of this narrative, Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. We also see out of this, this little passage that Jesus has authority over the natural realm. And this is the context by which we come into this passage, that Jesus has authority over the natural realm. He's going to have authority over the spiritual realm. We see that the first response given by someone who has witnessed the same events that everyone in the, in the area has event is that they beg him to leave and that they're afraid. This is the second time that, that they, Mark uses the term, somebody was afraid because of the miracle of Jesus. His disciples were just afraid just in the previous passage, but they stuck with him. Now we see people who are afraid and they leave him. And now we're coming to a different event. The person who has witnessed this event firsthand, the person who has been most dramatically affected by this event, is about to come to Jesus. And it says this. And they began to beg Jesus to depart. But when Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, that is a different response. Can you imagine that as we see the people who are begging Jesus to leave? Then we have the man who is affected coming, and to Jesus as he's about to get right back on the boat, and he begs him, please let me come with you. Please let me follow you and let me be with you because you just changed my life. I mean, can you imagine in a moment you went from being demon-possessed and out of your mind and living among the tombs to now sitting along the shores of the Sea of Galilee in your right mind, free of thinking, and having your own free will for the first time, and we don't know how long. And so Jesus tells him, uh, our natural inclination would be what? Of course you can come with me. Follow me. You can be a testimony to my work. But Jesus here doesn't allow him to follow him. He says, no, you can't follow me. You need to stay here, and you need to go proclaim what I have done throughout the Decapolis. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done from him. Uh, and everyone in the Decapolis did not fear. It does not say that they rejected Jesus. It says that from this man's preaching, everyone marveled at what had happened. And I think about these passages. I think about what is going on here because we could break this down. We could break this passage into three or four different sermons. Right? We, could, we could look at the, the incredible nature of how Jesus is, is pooling on the supernatural means within our realm. He, we could look at, uh, do an intense study on the title, What Does uh, Son of the Most High God Mean? But I think the, the thing that kept coming to my mind with this passage, is understanding what is Mark trying to portray to us throughout his narrative. And we have a clear indication here that as we are reading through the Gospel of Mark, Mark wants to make it abundantly clear that there is not a realm, there is not a position, there is not a single 
jot or tittle in our universe that Jesus does not have authority over. He has authority over everything. His authority over the winds and the seas and the natural realm. He has authority over the spiritual realm. And we're going to see in the very next passage, and we're not going to get into it, but I encourage you to, that this is where Jesus meets the woman who is, has a discharge of blood and he heals her. And we're going to see that Mark is portraying Jesus has authority over the physical realm. And so Mark is giving us such a beautiful picture of Jesus' authority And as I've contemplated and as I've reflected on this passage, one of the things that comes to my mind in the midst of all of this is that how do we use this as a passage that encourages us in the moments of today? Because we're living in a society where the church um, is losing its influence on society. Uh, We want to think back to the golden age. And I think of, uh, of a quote that I just recently heard by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish uh, theologian and pastor. Uh, and he has a very firm saying where he says, we as the church oftentimes want to strive for the theology of glory. Where we miss the golden days of the Great Awakening where the church had this incredible authority over culture. And we were, we were dominating in so many of the different areas of culture. But we have an eternity for glory. That's coming. That's a promise to us as Christians. But we now need to live under the theology of the cross and the resurrection, where when Jesus comes to us and tells us to be his disciples, he bids us to come and die to self, and he bids us to come that we are going to be persecuted. Jesus doesn't say it's a matter of if it happens. It's just a matter of when and how severe. And so when we look at that, I look around in our society today, and I want to be, um, I want to have this dominance. I want to see Christianity have a dominance over society. I want to see us having influence in the entertainment industry, over the ethics, over the morals of the world. I look at uh, some of the different things that are happening with our entertainment industry, and they are just ridiculous. But one, and it's easy to get disheartened. It's easy to look around and look at the virus. It's easy to look around and look at politics or Look at the way that the world is going, and it's easy to get disheartened. But one of the things that this passage tells us is that don't lose heart, because we have a Savior. We are in direct, intimate relationship with someone who has authority over every realm of the world. There isn't a single thing that happens in this world that Jesus does not have authority over. And we see that even with the, with the demons, to where the demons could not even come out of the man on their own, but Jesus had to give them permission. And so when we, when we look at our society, um, we should have confidence. One of the other things that I want to look at is we're going to come back to, uh, to Ephesians. And uh, I realize you guys might not be able to read that. That's a little small. Um, but if you have your Bibles open, turn to Ephesians 3. Uh, because this was the original passage I thought I was going to teach on. But it turns out I think these can complement each other very well. So we're going to be in Ephesians three fourteen through 21 uh, to close out the sermon today. Because this is a passage, again, that I've been uh, meditating on for about a month now. And I think this is a good posture that when we understand the authority of Jesus and we understand that he has everything in control. He's able to bring healing. And that's one of the things that's beautiful about that passage is we could look at it from so many angles. We could see because of Jesus, he brings psychological healing. He brings physical healing. 
to the man in his arms, uh, to the cuts, to where when he's restored to his right mind, he's not, he's not instantly healed, but he stops harming himself. And so we have so many different ideas that we could pull out of that passage. But I think when I look at that passage and understand that Jesus is reigning in authority over everything, my mind comes back to 14 through 21. And this was written by Paul. Uh, and one of the things that I love about this is that when Paul writes in these books, he's often splitting the first half with doctrine. So we have the first half over here, which is going to be uh, chapters 1 through 3, which is giving us doctrine. It's giving us theology, and it's giving us what we should believe. And then his last half is then giving us application of that. How is that actually worked out? This is the end of his doctrinal section. And he says this, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. This is a nice benediction. It's a nice closing of his doctrinal section. And one of the things that I love about this is that tying this in with the authority of Jesus, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. When we look at Paul, and he understood Jesus' authority better than almost anyone. He encountered it firsthand on the road to Damascus. Uh, He is brought to his knees, and he closes out his doctrinal section, not with um, a fancy debate. He doesn't close it out with, us being able to argue for the authority of Jesus and say that we can just demolish secular strongholds, which, I mean, that, that could be an application depending on uh, what, where it's at. But what he does is that he ends his doctrinal section with worship. Is that when we understand the authority of Jesus, when we understand that he is in control of everything, that we see here that from every family in heaven on earth is named from God, we see that Paul is led back to his knees in worship. And that's something that's been on my heart a lot recently because I, um, my natural personality is I see something uh, and I love to be able to uh, talk about it and I love being able to try to engage it and I want to be able to persuade people's minds. I want to be able to uh, have a classic debate, um, which, again, social media is not for. Uh, I've learned that the the hard way when I was younger. Um, But when we see Jesus in all of his glory, when we see him having his authority over the different realms, and then we're brought back and we understand that Jesus here is so much greater in his love that our minds can't even comprehend it. It says that to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, it's so much more than just knowledge, it leads Paul back to worship. And I think as the church, one of the things that we could recapture in the midst of hardships with COVID and politics that honestly are just diabolical, they're so corrupted and and we're trying to figure all of this out, Um, As a church, I don't think that we need a church that can uh, debate secular philosophy. I mean, 
we should be able to do that. We see Paul doing that in Acts 17. But I think the first response that the church should be bringing to the table in the midst of 2021 is worship. Because if we worship, the world is going to see that as starkly different than anything that they do. It's starkly different than when we encounter the authority of Jesus. Uh, we don't marvel um, at it and then go off and try to have debates in the Decapolis, but that we see someone who is directly affected by it, and he falls to his knees, and, and he wants to come with Jesus. So, in closing, uh, we're going to end a few minutes early, but I, I like the, serm- I like the uh, quote that uh, many 30-minute sermons have been ruined by going 40. So we're not going to just sit up here and talk for a while. Um, I could, but we're not going to. But one of the things that is, is beautiful is that when we end and look at all these passages, um, we see the demoniac, we see Jesus bringing order from chaos, we see Jesus having authority, which is a beautiful thing because we are in relationship with him. One of the other beautiful things is that that should also cause us not to have our heads f- be filled with knowledge, but it should cause us the way Paul ends Ephesians 3, is with this beautiful mindset of worship. Um, I think we have, the, we have the triangle, if you guys have ever seen this, of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and doxology. Uh, orthodoxy, which is what we believe, orthopraxy, which is how those things are worked out, the practice of it, and then doxology, which is worship. Doxology, which is this reverence that we should be bringing to the table. And so that's my something that God has been laying on my heart today. Uh, thank you guys for, for coming out this morning. Um, and I pray that this was a challenge to us as a church, um, because I am right there with you, just because I'm, I'm Preaching on these things does not mean I have them figured out. If anything, it actually shows me how much more I need to submit myself to Christ and how I need to worship uh, at, the f- at the foot of the cross. So I'm going to close us in prayer, uh, and then you guys are free to go. Father, thank you for today. It is a pleasure to be able to open up your word this morning, to be able to talk uh, about what you've been laying on my heart, uh, but I'm so thankful, Father, that we are in a time where we can gather together as the church, that we are able to gather together as followers of your Son, that we can look at your word, your infallible word, and and understand what you are communicating to us. And as we go throughout this week, I pray that you bring to mind in these situations that when when we feel fearful, when we feel like there are things that are are chaotic and are going out of control, whether it be with our jobs or our nation or our politics, uh, I pray, Father, that you bring this passage to mind and understand that you are the only one who can bring order out of chaos. You're the only one who uh, who can work in these situations and bring them to your own glory. Father, thank you for who you are, that in the midst of our culture, when it's ever-changing, that you are immutable, you don't change, and that our salvation is not how tightly we hold on to you, but it's that you hold us in your hand and you don't let us go. Thank you, Father, for who you are, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.